Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing today? Excellent and thoroughly psyched about our topic today. Yeah, absolutely. One of the real threads that runs under so many of the conversations that we've had on the podcast is our relationship with ourself. We've talked in the past about the value of having a view of our self-concept as something that can grow and change over time, and we've explored many aspects of Buddhist thought connected to how a narrow attachment to the perceived self can lead to a lot of suffering. But what is that self exactly? Where can we find it, if anywhere in the brain, and how can we use this inquiry to both understand ourselves a bit better and help us address a variety of psychological challenges? To help us hopefully start to answer some of those questions, we're joined by a psychiatrist, neuroscientist, New York Times bestselling author, and returning guest, Dr. Judd Brewer. So Judd, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. We've been really looking forward to this one. It's like such a deep topic. I'm going to start by just giving a little extra bio for you. Uh, Dr. Judd is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University, where he also serves as an associate professor, and he's also the Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at ShareCare, Inc. And his most recent book is Unwinding Anxiety, which we had a great time exploring the material related to the last time he was on the show. So as I said, this has been like a very top of mind conversation for both my dad and me. And I would love to start by just clarifying a little bit of what we're talking about today, like what a self is exactly and whether that self is based on something other than the, just the physical processes in the brain and body is a question that's captivated people for a really long time. And one of the challenges here is kind of defining exactly what we're talking about when we say consciousness or self or anything like that. And that just feels like a really good place to start today. So when researchers are studying the brain and looking for the structures that could contribute to these things, what are they looking for exactly? <laughs> that's the million dollar question. Right? <laughs> so so I'm gonna I'm gonna pull a, a Zen parachute and say, don't know. <laughs> but so I will say, and Rick, I'd love to hear how you are thinking about this, but there are some influential neuroscientists that, you know, science, a lot of it is about slicing and dicing, you know, making, cutting things into component pieces so that we can isolate variables and things like that. And I would say one of the networks that we certainly talked about before, but is, you know, even has self, now has self-reference in its, you know, kind of subtitle, the default mode network seems to come up over and over and over. And I'll just mention that there was a paper published probably about 10 years ago now by Chin and Northoff, where they did a meta-analysis of different studies looking at different you know, ways of trying to, let's say, evoke self-referential processing. And they kind of differentiated two main hubs of the default mode network, the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex, as more with the former being more of a conceptual sense of self mm. and the latter being more of an experiential sense of self. So that might be one differentiation to explore a little bit. And my understanding of this is that, you know, the conceptual sense of self is kind of, you know, I get up in the morning, I look in the mirror and I say, yep, that's Judd, you know, the concept of Judd. And then I, um, 
stub my toe on the dresser <laughs> and I go, ow. And I go, yep, that's Judd. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's my experience. <laughs> so, and of course those two work together. So the, the feeling of, of contraction that comes when I, you know, contract around that pain may be a marker of the experiential sense of self. And then my conceptual sense comes in and says, you know, judge, you stubbed your toe, that type of thing. So that's one place to start. Yeah, building on that. I mean, I, I like that distinction, of course, between ideas about me and also the experiences of things happening to me, potentially witnessed by a sense of I. And in all this, the correlates neurologically of self-related representations and activities are a wonderful area of research. And that undertaking seems relatively straightforward in the wonderful world of neuroscience. The related question is, what are we talking about? And this is where it's been really helpful for me, Judd, and I appreciate your more educated take on it. It's been helpful for me to distinguish among consciousness, person, and self. Consciousness is the totality of our experiential world in flow continuously, the streaming of consciousness. Person seems clear. There's a Judd person, there's a Rick person, there's a Forrest person, there's a mind-body process that has a certain stability and coherence over time. Clearly, there are persons. But then there's this presumed entity, kind of, sort of, inside, the presumed psychological self that is presumed to have these three fundamental characteristics implicitly of essentially it's unified, there's only one self. Second, it's enduring, who we are fundamentally is the same over time. And third, it's independent. It witnesses things that happen, but it's not itself constructed by them. And so the question is really, is there such a being? Is there such an entity deep down inside? In other words, we continually have representations of the self, ideas about a self. We continually have these experiences at which it seems like there is a semi-coherent I who is witnessing experiences or is the agent of actions or is the receiver of experiences. So in all that, there's this presumption of a coherent, independent, unified, enduring entity. On the other hand, is there actually such a one? either experientially, when you look closely at your own experience, is there such a one? And is there such a one embedded in a particular unified, enduring, and independent neural substrate? And on the whole, you know, my own investigation, both experientially and from what I know of neuroscience, is that there is no such one, which has incredible implications for how we can move through life as persons protecting ourselves and nurturing others as persons without taking things so personally <laughs> by being identified with a particular self. What do you make of all that? Well, maybe drilling down into that, you know, how can we get a unified sense of self from what we know as an ever-changing process? Yeah. You know, as you were saying that, the image came up of kind of a, a record, people remember what those look like, or a... Um, <laughs> You know, it kind of like a, a short tape where maybe think of a, a security camera where the tape is constantly being overwritten. So it's the same tape that's looping, but the camera is kind of continuously layering in the data for the, in the present moment. 
And so that makes me think of, you know, our experience, really all we have is this moment and the closest moment that we have to this moment is the previous moment. And, you know, this moment then leads, you know, is going to kind of move into the next moment. So if there's a, if we've kind of got this loop running that says self, 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 it could be, you know, from one moment to the next, it could be writing, rewriting that thing that says, okay, you know, it hasn't changed, hasn't changed unless something major has changed. And that, that loop could be giving us a stable sense of self, but at the same time be constantly changing. And it makes me think of the different ways that even in Buddhist psychology that people talk about rebirth. So I think Stephen Batchelor and others have talked about you know, rebirth, not necessarily in terms of one full lifetime, you know, like somebody living 80 years and then dying and then being reborn, but really seeing it as a moment to moment phenomenon. And there might be others that talk about this as well, which makes a lot of sense in terms of this looping phenomenon that this moment dies, so to speak, and is reborn in the next moment. And it conditions us to be reborn in what was. So the best predictor of future experience is past experience. And so if we had a past sense of self, that gets reborn into the present moment, which then is constantly being reborn into the future. And so that fits with the, you know, the Buddhist psychology suggesting that that rebirth could be a moment-to-moment phenomenon. And also fits pretty well with the neuroscience that that may be what's happening where this constantly changing phenomenon is really seen as somewhat stable because the change is very, very gradual. Mm-hmm. You're reminding me of Evan Thompson's, for me, tour de force book, Mind in Life, and just brilliant and beautiful. And his phrase, standing streaming, he's talking about standing mm-hmm. waves. And there's a recurring metaphor in my book, Neurodharma, eddies in the stream, eddies have a kind of stability. And you and I both share a, a real interest in developmental psychology, and I think about the necessity for people, whether it's me as a little kid or Forrest as a little kid, to develop a relatively coherent and stable, standing, streaming sense of meanness. And absent that, including in psychosis or terrible brain damage, schizophrenia, that's, that's devastating to lack that kind of sense. So on the one hand, there's the necessity of cultivating that sort of presumption of a kind of sort of coherent core. What I'm sort of getting at, though, is that implicit in that process, which seems fairly clear how it kind of sort of happens mentally and neurally. We'll know a lot more in a century, but we're pretty far along, and you've really helped us there. The question is, of course, what does that actually mean? Ontologically, in other words, does it mean that there actually is some kind of purported entity self that has independent, unified, and enduring existence? And that's where I do think it all kind of breaks down. And the radical opportunity for people is to, you know, move through life less personally, (laughs) (laughs) or less defensively, less possessively less identified with their views, less attached to their pleasure. So you talk about the ways in which, or I'll, I'll put it in my own language, where do you see selfing? You know, selfing is a experience. It, it's a process that increases and decreases. 
kind of dials up and dials down, it tends to really dial up related to, as you know, the feeling tone, the hedonic tone of experiences as pleasant or unpleasant. Pleasantness and unpleasantness are quickly followed within a second or two or three by an intensified sense of me, as it were. Also, ex relationships, experiences with others are another major promoter of the sense of me. So as you watch that ebbing and flowing, you can really see that a lot that not so much that selfing drives craving and wanting, but that actually desire starts to manifest a self, a sense mm -hmm. of self in the mind to, to accomplish that desire. Makes me think of you know these links of dependent origination where craving leads to clinging, and as they describe, clinging leads to birth, you know, birth of a mm -hmm. sense of self. And so putting that really pragmatically, mm -hmm. you know, if there's something pleasant and we start to hold on to it, we're trying to kind of make something more stable, more solid, more permanent. And that, that manifests, you know, that, that contraction can say, oh, I want, I, you know, the I is born there. Whereas if it were just, you know, pleasant coming and going, the sense of self may not be, may not have that seed crystal to be born as much, but that, that contraction you know, and the more we contract, the more we hold on, the more that might reify the sense of I am. Mm -hmm. Is that is that how I'm understanding what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. The classic Buddhist teaching is that the sense of self drives craving. And there there is some truth to that, right? When you have a sense of, let's say, having a, a damaged self, as I did when I was a kid and that I needed to protect it and I needed to get certain things to to shore it up. You think about it, I don't know if you're very familiar with this, you probably are psychoanalysis and object relations. They talk about self-objects, yeah, that sort of complete the sense of self. That's true. So selfing drives craving and the suffering. But when you watch it experientially in your mind, very often it's really striking, isn't it? I wonder how you interpret it. You're just rolling along, personing away, mindful aware, just walking down the street, lights, sounds, things are happening, right? Thoughts are whirling through. Very, very little sense of self. And then either an enemy or a friend turns the corner on the street and it's like, woo, suddenly you can just feel the circuits warm up and then load, as it were, rickness or juddness in the moment. And the wanting related to that stimulus starts to actually construct selfing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so to me, being aware of this in real time, wow, it's great because it kind of helps you deconstruct the selfing process. And you see it as a natural, biologically rooted phenomenon, really aided us. I'd love to get your take here. Where I'm shooting off in a lot of directions about the evolution of the sense of self compared to that in other primates. And uh, mm -hmm. I'll leave out the citations because they're, they're maybe harder to study right now. But anyway, so we, ha we have this constructed self-process serves all kinds of functions, but wow, is it a double-edged sword? And you can just see out in the world so much pain and neurosis that's associated to problematic self-referential activity. Yeah, wow, where to start there? You know, if we just think about this, you know, the, the evolutionary process, and I'm not, you know, I'm not the expert here, so I will give some baseless speculation, some BS. <laughs> Uh, but, <laughs> you know, if we look at 
the development of things like agrarian societies where we had to really start to keep track of time. And instead, you know, I imagine hunter gatherers, they're living more of a momentary existence. They're hunting, they're gathering, resting, sleeping, you know, uh, procreating, things like that. But they're not thinking, hmm, you know, next month, I, I wonder what I'd like to hunt and gather. Really, I would guess, and again, this is a guess, they're focusing more on the on today because they don't have to think as much about tomorrow. With the you know planting of crops, we have to remember where the crops are. <laughs> we have to we have to remember when to harvest them, and we have to plan ahead. You know, don't be I don't know going into the marketplace doing whatever when it's harvest time. Spend time in the fields harvesting the crops. So we had to be thinking into the future more. And, you know, I don't know when the sense of, you know, the, the possessiveness came in as well. It's like my crops, <laughs> you know, but I'm sure that played a role as well. So that's, that's the first thing I think of when you talk about this, this development, the more we start relying on thinking into the future, the more that seems to involve a sense of self in a number of different realms. Well, I think that's really true, especially compared to other primates. I mean, we've had this, as again, you you well know, this incredible build out, build out of midline cortical networks, uh, which loosely do seem to be kind of the the superhighway of neural correlates for self-referential activity of different kinds, whether it's more kind of ruminative spacing out type activity related to default mode activation or more task-oriented activity more related, let's say, to frontal kind of networks there. But these larger systems that enable mental time travel don't seem so present, you know, really functionally in the other great apes, you know, the other, our primate mm -hmm. cousins. So you can just see the ways in which the imagined self into the future with affective forecasting and also the self we reflect on in the past, what happened to us, lessons learned, wounds suffered, resentments acquired, <laughs> going forward, grudges building. That process, you know, is the full elaboration of all that self-relatedness is just not accessible, seemingly, even to other primates, because they just don't have these midline networks, which obviously aided human evolution tremendously in our movement, you know, from hominids to the last you know, several hundred thousand years of anatomically modern humans layered on top of which whatever happened in the last 10,000 years, you know, with the movement into agriculture. Well, this whole realm of predictive processing, you know, that seems to be one thing that we're pretty good at doing, or certainly we do a lot, yeah. where, you know, we take past experience and we simulate it based on current, you know, experience, and we project what might happen in the future, which can help us plan exactly. for the future. And so it helps, you know, it has a great advantage of helping us, you know, decide what do I want to do? You know, I can pick A, B, or C, and then we imagine, oh, okay, you know, let's say if it's a, you know, it's a weekend and we're invited to three different parties, we can imagine, oh, who's going to be at each of those parties? And based on our past experience, how fun they were, if we know the people or don't know the people or whatever, and it helps us make you know, make an efficient, well, hopefully an efficient decision where we say, okay, oh, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to stride this party first because it's most likely to be fun. And that's just an example, but that's what we're doing all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, what do I want to have for dinner? 
how do I want to drive to work? You know, w- without the, unless I just want to completely rely on Waze or my mm-hmm. phone that tells me what the most, you know, it that's doing the predictive processing for me. Mm-hmm. So that seems helpful. Yeah. And at the same time, I think we can color that based on our subjective bias, which comes back to the sense of self. Mm. You know, it's like, I'm doing this and all of our past experience is colored by this subjective bias of how we see ourselves in the world and how we see ourselves interacting with mm. others. You mm-hmm. know, ironically, the, you know, we, we call that subjective bias, but in, you know, in Buddhist terms, they talked about that in terms of ignorance because we aren't seeing the world clearly. Mm. And by that, I mean, we're seeing the world colored by the lenses of our past experience and how we've interpreted it and how personally we've taken it. When you yourself, if I dare to ask, are engaged in that inner process of reflection, affective forecasting, as it were, you know, imagining different futures for you as a person, and then feeling also maybe a kind of, I'll speak for myself here, a kind of muscular drive in one direction or another that does, again, craving foster selfing, that kind of muscular drive, then on the heels of it come a fair amount of personal associations, often socially loaded, having to do with how other people think of me or how I want them to think of me or how I fear they think of me, as well as how I think of them. Okay. When you're in your version of that, knowing what you know about the brain and also being grounded in deep practice, what do you do yourself? Do you help yourself disidentify from some of these self representations do you help yourself hold you know self-related goals more lightly what do you do yeah it's a great question and i would say this is a a continuous and ever evolving exploration for me personally so i would say right now and who knows it might change in a week i'm very struck by how strong our you know, our basic survival brains are are helping us learn and then also coloring our experience. You know, we develop these subjective biases, these these senses of self through, you know, these basic processes. Like whether you look at Buddhism and they talk about Vedana, you know, pleasant or unpleasant, or you look at modern day psychology and they talk about positive and negative reinforcement. I think those processes are basically talking about the same thing. And there, you know, I... <laughs> It's been really helpful for me to explore just watching that process unfold itself where I can watch, ooh, there, you know, I have a pleasant thought and I want to, my brain wants to elaborate on it, wants to hold on to that pleasant thought. So I, you know, get lost in a daydream or, you know, continue, my brain continues thinking about it and, you know, wants that good feeling to continue, right? Basic, you know, positive reinforcement. And so here, I found it very helpful to just remember what actually drives reinforcement learning, which is not necessarily the the pleasantness or the unpleasantness. Certainly those play a role. But what drives it is how rewarding the behavior is. And so I've really been looking at the behavior. Let's just look at mental proliferation as the behavior, because mm-hmm. these behaviors, not just physical, but mental, you know, what was the term? In Buddhism, they talk about papancha, mm-hmm. you know, 
which I love because it sounds like a horse galloping off into the distance. And that's what our brains do. They gallop off, you know, in thought proliferation, just thinking and thinking and thinking and thinking. And so there, watching that process of my mind, you know, getting caught in thought, wanting the pleasant ones to continue, and then trying to slam the door on the unpleasant ones and trying to make them go away, distract myself, whatever. I just look at, you know, it's it's really interesting to just explore what I get from that. Like when I what I get from being totally lost in thought versus just noticing the thought, right? And so if I get caught up in thought, if I take it personally, there's the self mm-hmm. versus if I can just notice the thought and let it gallop off without me jumping on its back and you know getting dragged behind it. You know, those two are very qualitatively different for me. And I'd love to hear what your experience is. But it's like one takes a lot of energy and has a lot of, you know, a lot of push and pull to it, you know, that taking it personally does. Whereas simply being curious, and I think of curiosity as that way to unstick the glue, Mm. you know, it's that solvent, (laughs) the self solvent. Which just helps, you know, the observing of the experience and the, it really helps develop equanimity just to notice, oh, there's, you know, there's a thought and this is what it's like not to take it personally versus what it's like to take it personally. And then I can just let my brain do the rest of the work because if something's painful or more painful than something else, my brain's going to not do it if it can clearly link up that cause and effect. And if it finds something is more pleasant, it's going to keep doing it relative to something else. And so my brain likes curiosity. It's pretty pleasant. And it's a lot less painful than getting caught up in the story of me, you know, whether it's, oh, I'm great or, oh, I'm terrible, yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever it is that, oh, <laughs> is painful. And so I'm going, oh, no, I can go, oh, and there, there's that, that self-solvent coming in. Is that your experience or am I way out? <laughs> well, I, I love how you, one, are calling our awareness to what it feels like to get caught up in rumination with the papancha parade of horses off the cliff, right? And what does it feel like to be caught up in rumination contrasted with what does it feel like to be curious? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you're focusing on the sense of reward with the underlying neuro chemical processes involved in that, in each one of them. I think also for a lot of people, self-related rumination is affectively negative. You know, research shows that the more that people tend to be caught up in rumination, the, the more they tend to, on average, have heightened negative emotions. So that kind of tilts in that direction. So that's really interesting. What I wanted to toss in is this metaphor that stands out for me about the self, Forrest knows it, of a unicorn. In other words, we can have compounded, impermanent, and dependently arising, thus empty in the technical language. We can have thoughts of horses. So these are empty thoughts, as it were. They exist, but they're spacious, they're made of parts, they're rippling, they're eddies in the stream. We can have thoughts of horses, and horses themselves are made of parts, that are connected and changing, thus empty of absolute identity and existence. Okay, but they still exist. 
simply emptily. So we have, you know, thoughts of an actually existing creature. Similarly, we have lots and lots of thoughts, broadly stated, about the apparent presumed self, this sort of kind of entity inside of other people, inside of ourselves. We have thoughts about it, and yet the actual constituting attributes of that purported self, in other words, unification, endurance, and independence, can never be found in the whole package. You never find the whole package of the presumed entity self either in your experience or in the brain. And so, like a unicorn, it just doesn't exist. So, now to your example, in the beginning, when we think that unicorns are, are real, we have lots of opinions about them and we care a lot about how we imagine they're gonna be treated, right? Mm. But over time, as you gradually start to believe that unicorns are not actually real, and you kind of start to get more and more into that 51% tipping point, where there's more and more of a, a rapid takeaway. Persons are real, but uh, unicorns aren't. Then you lighten up faster and faster. I gotta tell you that really having it land again and again, that there just can't be that sort of presumed self has been an incredible relief, personally. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think gradually it's probably led me to be less of an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but that's still in process. Well, and I'm curious, you know, what pragmatically leads to the less of an assholeness yeah. from that exploration? Like, what, what is it? I think less possessiveness, <clears throat> less prickliness. I think so much of the construction of self is social and that there's a reason why our profoundly social brain co-evolved with a profoundly self-referential brain <laughs> over the last several million years uh, as we move from hominids to humans. So less uh, prickly, less, less um, narcissism gets very interesting here, right? Because for a lot of people, understandably, they need self-affirmation developmentally. And when they don't get those healthy, quote unquote, narcissistic supplies, there's a hole in their heart and a lot of longing. So paradoxically, it's actually really useful to very deliberately internalize experiences of attunement, rapport, being valued, being included, being cared about, et cetera, with others deliberately to fill that hole in your heart and actually release the craving for adulation and being impressive and being included and so on over time. Because you gradually fill yourself up. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, we, we can kind of feel it. I, I remember uh, being in a, I'll leave out some of the gory details, being in a group of Buddhist teachers uh, who are much more experienced than me, and they were actually interviewing someone for a job. And when that person finished the interview and they left the room, they all looked at each other and they just kind of kindly said, ah, a lot of self there. <laughs> you, know, you can kind of feel that with some people and that makes mm -hmm. it harder to work with them. I mean, I think that for a lot of this, like, so there, so there are two tracks of questions that we're engaging with here, right? Which is the first, like, what is a self? Can you find it in the brain? Is the self like a unicorn? Is the self a real thing? All of that content. And the second content is like, what does that mean for us? And how can we practice mm -hmm. with that in a way that's really helpful? Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of that second one for me, I've gotten a ton of value out of trying to get closer and closer to my sensory experience of the world, as opposed to 
what my brain is telling me about my sensory experience of the world. All of that mm -hmm. more self-referential content, all of the content related to how am I trying to integrate that sensory experience into my perceived self, even if that self is a bit of a unicorn, whatever we want to call it. And that's been a very useful practice for me personally as somebody who definitely has a tendency to cognitively bypass. Like I'm a very thinking top-down kind of guy. And the ways in which I've been able to try to like work around a tightly wound self has allowed me to move closer to my experience. So I've gotten a lot of value out of physical practices, whether that be exercising or dancing or artistic practices that feel like they kind of get to some aspect that's a little bit less funneled through some of those, those cognitive structures that can lead to the heavy selfing that we're talking about during those this conversation. And I, I do find often a real sense of like relief associated with them. And mm. I think that's kind of a good word for it. I, I, I think it might've been you, Judd, who used that word a little bit earlier, but like, that's just a really good word for this whole thing. There can be a relief with lightening up about some of this. Mm -hmm. Just to build on that word, if we think, yeah. you know, if anybody just kind of tries to hold something and the tighter they hold it, you know, that's, that can become painful over time. We get our hand gets a cramp, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of energy, we get tired. But when we let go and just let that thing, you know, rest in the palm of our hand. Yeah. I think if I'm understanding what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. There's a relief in that. Oh, I don't have to hold on. Yeah. You know, and, and in this sense, I can be with the, you know, whatever's happening rather than I have to do something to make it stick around or make it go away. Mm -hmm. you know yeah very much so just as a as a quick kind of like takeoff of that because it connects to something you were saying a second ago i think explicitly but also implicitly in this conversation is that the creation of what we're calling the self was super useful evolutionarily and that's something that you've really unpacked in aspects of your work and in order to kind of stay alive in these very very harsh environments we needed to develop something that we wanted to perpetuate, right? That we wanted to keep going so that it could pass on gene copies that pass on gene copies. And I think it really connects to a lot of your work on addiction and a lot of your work related to that on anxiety and like difficult experiences that people have. Because these days we we've kind of turned the creation of addiction into like a literal science socially. You know, food science, social media, gambling, all of these things. Mm. And we know that these addictive experiences are extremely accessible for people these days. And that contraction experience that you're speaking to, that like closed hand experience, mm -hmm. that's what it feels like to me when I'm really wrapped up in something that maybe I like a little bit too much that isn't perfectly mm -hmm. healthy for me. And I was just wondering, what do you think about that? Let's stick with the experience there. So one thing that I have found fascinating, mm -hmm. whether it's in my research or my outpatient clinic or even my own personal practice, has been... You know, what are the common experiences that overlap between an addiction and anxiety? So, for example, mm -hmm. I have a number of patients in my clinic. I'm thinking of one in particular who really she struggles with both anxiety and alcohol use. And what she found, what she described to me, was that she would feel anxious, this restless quality of anxiousness that was really unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And it would lead her to drink alcohol to kind of numb herself. Yet, ironically, when she would wake up in the morning with a hangover, 
that hangover had the same quality of restlessness that would then provoke and wake up her anxiety. Yeah. And in fact, the craving for alcohol itself, you know, so many people have described that, you know, if I say, okay, describe craving, you know, oh, it's restlessness. Describe anxiety. Oh, it's restlessness. (laughs) You know, if you did a blinded taste test, so to speak, on anxiety and addiction, where you're just getting to the component elements, Mm. huge, huge overlap, you know, restless, contracted, both are unpleasant, you know, this, this feeling that really shares, you know, quite a bit between the two. So if we just start with the experience, I would say there's a a huge amount of overlap. I was going to say probably more overlap than not. Sure. But from a, and I would say that because what are the predominant experiences? That tends to be what people describe and they're, they're Mm. pretty similar. Mm. Uh, What what do you all think of that? Just starting with the experience and then we can get to the, the other pieces. That's extremely consistent with my own experience where the, the coping behavior aspect of this, I think is really interesting and how a coping behavior could be tied in some sense to a form of selfing. Like, what are we trying to protect through the coping behavior? Is, is it just that we're trying to get rid of like negative hedonic tone or are we trying to preserve some aspect of how we view or think about ourselves? And I don't have a great answer for that one, but I find it very interesting. Well, just starting with that, I would say that the trying to preserve a sense of self has a hedonic yeah. tone. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, going on. And going. it has a craving quality. I think, Rick, you talked about that earlier. We We start to you know, crave keeping our concept, you know, who we are alive. If somebody goes on social media and says, you are not, you know, great at whatever, mm-hmm. we st- that's unpleasant. We start to cling to our self-concept and then crave ways to make, make it true. <laughs> you know? We're raising first the distinction between the value in healthy desires related to persons from problematic desires, problematic just purely pragmatically. They lead to suffering and harm for ourselves and others. Uh, Problematic desires related to a purported self. And I think sometimes people in more spiritual worlds blur that distinction, and, and which isn't so good. It's really okay to stand up for persons. It's really okay to honor your needs as a person. Uh, it's when we start getting into possessiveness and glorification and defensiveness related to our purported self that we start getting into more and more trouble. So that would be kind of part one there. Yeah. And then part two, going back to anxiety and craving, I think it's freaking brilliant. I just want <laughs> me thinking about that one for the rest of the day. Uh, and it highlights this thing I was reflecting on earlier about somatic markers using Antonio mm-hmm. Damasio's term. And the mm-hmm. ways in which, again, if, if people are sort of mindful of the ebb and flow of the sense of self, increasing, decreasing, or moving in one direction or another, just over the course of a, of a breath or, or of an hour, you'll observe that underlying a growing sense of self and even a particular kind of self or tone of self is a particular somatic marker such as the underlying bodily sense of the overlap, let's say, between extremes of craving and and anxiety. And Mm -hmm. that's useful to observe. And I go back developmentally to how an infant slowly but surely starts to acquire 
that sense of a coherent me, quote unquote, inside, who can relate to similar sorts of me's, quote unquote, inside mom and dad and others, right? The gradual development of that coherence. And I think a lot of that coherence has to do with repetitive patterns of, you know, that create loops essentially of, of um, wanting something with a related body sensation, achieving it, getting the feedback that confirms that expectation again and again and again with a related kind of executive view about it all. And that coalescing increasingly over time as sort of major building blocks of the emerging sense of self, let's say by age two or three. So the somatic markers are really interesting to pay attention to. And, and again, if people are, in, are at all interested, you know, if they've drunk my Kool-Aid and they want to deconstruct the unicorn, one way to do that is to observe, oh, there's this body sensation that underlies this sense of self. Related to it are different ideas and there's different emotions or different desires. And we can unpack all of that. And then you observe, oh yeah, it's all present there in an unpacked and fluid and kind of ownerless, empty sort of way that's not itself a problem. It becomes a problem when we start jamming those pieces together and glorifying and defending them. Yeah, jamming the pieces together, you know, it makes me think of working against entropy. Particles by the laws of thermodynamics, you know, they're less likely to be, you know, if you're given a chance, they will become more disordered than ordered. And so it takes a lot of energy to order particles. That's why it takes energy to freeze water into ice, for example. Mm. And the more we think of the self as this ice cube, <laughs> we, you know, it's like we put all this energy into trying to make something more ordered and we have to constantly keep adding that energy. You know, it's like you put water in the freezer, you have to plug it in and it's got to keep running to keep that ice cold. Yeah. And in that sense, that energy that we put into it, that effort feels, you know, as compared to not doing that, as compared to just letting it melt, actually, you know, given a choice between doing a bunch of effort just to keep an ice cube together versus not, I'd let it melt, you know, mm. because experientially it just feels good to let let it flow. And in that sense, I could see how we get caught in this idea that, you know, ice is good, you know, mm. if we were to continue with the metaphor. So I need to put energy into it because somehow it's been reified, it's been rewarded in the past. Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, developmentally, it can be helpful to develop a sense of self. I'm thinking of Jack Engler's quote, which is, you need a, you need a self to transcend the self, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. I'm thinking of where somebody with borderline personality disorder, for example, mm -hmm. it doesn't develop this stable sense of self yeah. and generally because of a chaotic childhood. And so they put all this energy into trying to get those pieces to stick together. Yeah. Mm. And so once we get the pieces to stick together, we can see exactly how much energy it takes and we can see how painful it is to keep holding on and taking things personally. But we have mm. to get a sense of that before we can really see, oh, now let's see what that feels like compared to letting go. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And it makes me think of Chicksamahai's concept of flow. You know, so water flows, ice is a, you know, more of a solid object. And so if you let that ice melt into water and you let things flow, that could be similar to 
moving from spending all this energy trying to contract and contract and contract, mm. <laughs> you know, self, 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 yeah. selfing, letting it flow, letting it go, and seeing that the more we let go, the more experience just flows without us getting in the way, mm-hmm. without us thinking that we're doing things. We're just, oh, wow, this stuff happens without me having to be there <laughs> making it happen, yeah. you know? And boy, does that feel so much better. Yeah. And in that sense, we're just letting the brain find what's more rewarding. Hmm. And to feel safe enough to let it flow really highlights the importance of early caregiving experiences mm-hmm. and also in adulthood where others, in a sense, treat us well, appropriately well as persons so that we can relax that contraction and fear of dissolution that mm-hmm. tends to drive us to form ice cubes in the center of our heart. <laughs> mm. Yes. So you just mentioned a second ago, letting it flow can feel good for the brain, can be a kind of, of reward to use your language from your most recent book, this idea of a bigger, better offer for the brain, something else that you're giving it um, that's equally rewarding to whatever the kind of problematic behavior is. We've got a pretty good sense that there are some underlying neural something or another that contributes to our construction of of what we think of as ourself. And I would love to like spend a little bit of time here on kind of the underlying neural stuff that's going on because you've just done such interesting research and I think that it has some very practical conclusions for people, particularly behaviorally in terms of what they can do. Um, You mentioned earlier these midline structures in the brain and then you mentioned the PCC, the posterior cingulate cortex. And particularly you've done some research that suggests that like deactivating that brain region leads to more of a relaxation of the sense of self. And so I would just like to kind of give you an opportunity to just talk about that and some of the underlying neurology here. Sure, I'd be happy to. And I think some of the, you know, we've done, geez, over a decade's worth of work now in this realm. So just, I would have to say some of the most fascinating work that that my lab has done has been related to some of the neurophenomenologic work where we actually yeah. give people feedback from their own brains in real time, you know, using fMRI and or EEG. And what that helps us do first is to bridge this subjective objective chasm where there's a lot of fraughtness in neuroscience, even as a term that's called reverse inference, where Mm. somebody links up a brain region with some function, and then somebody else sees that brain region being activated or deactivated, and they assume, oh, they must be doing this. So that's reverse inference, hugely problematic. So one way to bridge that is to well, link up subjective experience with brain activity in real time. That's the best way that I know to do that, to really say, okay, this is what I'm experiencing and this is what my brain's doing. So here, in a nutshell, what we've found is when we've zoomed in and we've mostly focused on the posterior cingulate cortex because in our early work, we found that that was the most consistently deactivated in experienced meditators across different types of meditation. It didn't matter what type they were doing. We zoomed in there, did you know these neurophenomenologic studies, and what we found was that the posterior cingulate was increased in activity when people were getting caught up in experience. That was the common language that we used for a host of different experiences that people reported. 
And then that correlated with their brain activity. So everything from getting uh, distracted. So when somebody's daydreaming, they're caught up in a daydream. You know, that's the papancha we were talking about. Everything from that to getting caught up in, you know, craving something to worrying. You know, other studies have found that worrying activates the default mode, for example. Other studies have found that, it, you know, craving things like everything from cocaine to chocolate activates the posterior cingulate. So that activity, we we kind of, our working hypothesis is that the more we get caught up in our experience, the more the posterior cingulate and probably the medial prefrontal cortex to some degree as well, it's activated. And when we simply rest in our experience and observe, you know, when there's awareness of what's happening, but we're not caught up in it, the posterior cingulate gets really quiet. And that that lines up pretty well with what others have, have described and conceptualized as that experiential sense of self, because we can feel what it feels like to get caught up in experience. We can feel what it feels like to get caught up in a craving or in worrying about the future. And we can also feel the absence of that as that starts to dissolve, as it starts to melt away, the more we're simply resting in awareness and not getting caught up in experience. Mm. So that's that's my current working hypothesis of one of the functions of the posterior cingulate cortex. And I'll just add one piece and then love to hear both of your takes on this. When that sent the conceptual sense of self evolved or came on board, came online, or however we want to think of it, we had to line that up with experience. And so if you look at the anatomical connections, if I remember this correctly, the posterior cingulate is connected anatomically to the hippocampus and these memory regions of the brain, whereas the medial prefrontal cortex is indirectly connected through the posterior cingulate cortex. So, and the other thing that I think studies have shown pretty well is that we tend to lay down emotional memories right? Our brain doesn't have the capacity to kind of be laying down memory of everything we do all the time. We have to selectively lay down memories. So what do we do when something's really exciting or really scary? We lay down that memory so that we remember, okay, do that again or don't do that again. Yeah. And so if something's really exciting, we get contracted. Oh, that was great. When something's really terrible, we get contracted with fear. Oh, that was terrible. And so if you think of that contraction being a timestamp that says, hey, lay this down and link this to me, that happened to me, I did that, that may help us make sense of the world the next day when we wake up and we immediately upload our memories and say, well, what did I do yesterday? Oh, that was awful. That happened to me. That might be a way that it helps us kind of link that conceptual sense of self with events so that we can then predict the future based on past experience. Well, first I'm thinking about the uh, somatic marker part again, that's in a contraction. A contraction is very rarely purely conceptual. There's usually some kind of underlying mm-hmm. body sensation element, which mm-hmm. would make sense. We're, we're laying down somatic tracks, as it were, that are associated with things that are really exciting or really, or really terrible. I'm so struck by what you said that the medial prefrontal cortex communicates, as it were, with the hippocampus via the PCC, the posterior cingulate cortex, 
which can then have a kind of gating function, maybe a regulatory function, and so forth. And maybe this is just way too inside baseball, inside, you know, cerebrum for a general audience. I don't know. But what do you think the implications of that are? And how can we practice with that? I would guess the beneficial aspects are that it helps us, you know, make sense of what we did in the past and learn from it and project into the future so that we can continue things that we found rewarding and stop doing things that were punishing, for example. The negative implications of that are that the more we get identified with those behaviors, the more we reify around them and look at the extreme end of the spectrum, or at least you know the way I think of this extreme end of the spectrum is addiction. So we can be addicted to behaviors, we can be addicted to substances, and we certainly can be addicted to ourselves. You know, I think of narcissism <laughs> as a very strong self-addiction. And I think, oh boy, I wish I could remember the authors. There was a paper written a couple of years ago, I, I use it in one of my classes, called the uh, ontological addiction theory or something mm. like that, where they, they make a really good argument where you know, self develops through this whole reinforcement learning process, just like any other addiction. Right. I mean, my takeaway from what you're saying is that a lot of what we're doing when we practice is swimming upstream against the currents of evolution. Mother Nature's good intentions, which promoted survival and passing on genes that passed on genes, as Forrest said, still creates a, a fair amount of suffering for us. Because if our PCC, as it were, is biasing experiences in a frame of self, and biasing learning is what I really mean to say through the hippocampus. And I'm, as you know, very interested in the process of deliberate social emotional learning. You know, and how can we actually heighten that process in good ways? So, if we have this little really important part of the brain, the PCC, that's taking the throughput of experiences and putting the self sticky on them, the unicorn sticky. Oh, yeah, more unicorn evidence, more unicorn evidence, da 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 da. Well, that's kind of problematic and needs to be taken into account. So that's a piece of that. And I'm I'm left with, do you probably know the Bahia Sutta? The same? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You know where I'm going. I'll just say it for a general audience. So very briefly, Bahia was a great teacher in the time of the Buddha, came to the Buddha for his teaching and moment of high drama. He asked the Buddha three times to give him his teaching. And I think of the Buddha as like Robert De Niro or Jack Nicholson, you know, in that moment, all right, you want my teaching? My teaching is this. In the seeing, let there be only the seeing. In the thinking, only the thinking. In the sensing, only the sensing. And when for you there is only seeing and the seeing, et cetera, there is no self there. And when there is no self there, in other words, when there is no self constructed, there is no self, period because there's no abiding entity. And that just that is the end of all suffering. So how to practice in a way that we can be functional persons with you know warm-hearted relatedness with other functional persons without adding the add-on burdens of selfing. That's really mm-hmm. a practice of a lifetime. It, absolutely. And my understanding, if I remember the sutta correctly, was you know, I think the sutta ends, and then, but he was gored by a bull. Yeah, so, that, that like, too. <laughs> he, he had to get enlightened pretty quickly because he was about to die. So fortunately, we have, hopefully, we are not about to get gored by bulls, so we can practice a little more, <laughs> we have a little more time to practice. Yeah. But it also highlights how 
you know, when we can see the self, when we can start to see where there is clinging, you know, in seeing self, we could, one way I could think of it for my own self, you know, I'm seeing, I'm hearing. exactly. And if I start to see how painful and not necessary I am in that equation, when I'm really just resting in awareness, there's just awareness. There's no me saying, oh, see that, see that, see that, see that. (laughs) There are sights, there are sounds. Yeah. 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 Which is distinct experientially from I am seeing, I am hearing. Yeah, go on. Yes. And it's, the process just feels more fluid and less clunky because it's like, I jumps in and says, oh, did you see that? Did you see that? And the seeing is just like, hey, dude, just let me see. (laughs) More like water and less like ice. Yes, yes. And there, it just feels so much more pleasant through its fluidity as compared to its interruptedness or its constructedness. And in that way, you know, we can, (laughs) we just put down that burden of the self naturally, but we have to be able to see it clearly. It's not mm. that, and ironically, we can't make ourselves put it down, you know, <laughs> because we're just, it's the self trying to dissolve the self. Yeah. It's like ice trying to dissolve ice. <laughs> Whereas it's just really letting the heat of awareness come in mm. and melt it naturally. Mm-hmm. You know, which is so hard for humans to do. I'll speak from my own experience. Mm-hmm. So hard for me to do is just be like, what being what just just <laughs> just rest in awareness. And then when I do in those moments, like, oh, oh, I get it. <laughs> Ooh, this is nice. <laughs> it's balmy. It's not freezing. <laughs> Quick question related to some of the stuff that we're talking about here, Judd, because we, we've highlighted, you've highlighted some key brain regions and some like plausible connections between them. You were talking about how these regions might speak to each other to very oversimplify and very complex yeah. kinds of ways to just use colloquial language. There's also some really interesting research that, you know, you probably know way more about than I do on patients that have severe brain damage, um, but are still able to evoke some kind of a sense of self, even though there's there's systemic damage to meaningful parts of the brain, which kind of suggests, based on that research, that there isn't like a place in the brain that the self lives, that instead it's based off of some kind of complex and distributed network where different operations are occurring in different places, all of that kind of stuff. So for starters, I would love to just learn a little bit more about that and whatever you happen to know about that. And I'm also wondering, even though we focused in narrowly on these couple of specific regions, connected to this is this question of like, when do we start having, or when does a a animal start having a self versus like not having a self? And what's the tipping point there? And I I would just love to, to hear more about any of that, really. So just starting with the second question, my understanding, and it's been a couple of years, so it might be outdated, but my understanding is the default mode network starts booting up around the age of six or seven. Mm. And Rick, you would know this better than I would in terms of developmental terminology. But my sense is that's about the same time that kids start developing stability in a sense of self. Mm -hmm. So starts booting up around the age of six or seven, (laughs) stops being helpful soon thereafter. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm thinking of my... uh, I don't know anybody that comes through adolescence unscathed. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I definitely didn't. (laughs) So that may be, you know, from a 
developmental perspective around the time where where things start to solidify. And sorry, just rephrase your first part so I can boot it back up in my brain. Yeah, I'm I'm because you've done research on practices, essentially mm-hmm. experienced meditators, relaxation and certain aspects of the brain or certain key regions in the brain that could plausibly reduce the sense of clinging that we were talking about earlier, the very, very closed fist, things like that. At the same time, if self, however you want to refer to it, is based on a much more distributed network inside of the brain, like, are there really ways that we can kind of relax that or tune into that or relate to that if it's a much more kind of holistic thing as opposed to being cued to a specific brain region? And I'm just wondering your broad thinking on that. Yeah, it's a great question. And interestingly, you know, a lot of research having to do with people with brain damage has to do with patients who've had strokes, for example. And that is generally research of convenience in terms of it's not convenient for somebody to have a stroke, but it's convenient for a researcher to study someone that's had a stroke. Totally. And if you look at the, you know, the places where our blood vessels are most vulnerable to damage, you know, they tend to be at branch points and other anatomical factors that tend to place strokes in places that affect things like language and language comprehension, language generation, things like that. But not so much the posterior cingulate cortex or the default one network in general. So there are very few case studies of people having strokes or having arteriovenous malformations that then get resected, you know, et cetera. I do remember there was a, I think it was a neurosurgeon in Spain who brought to my attention somebody who had developmentally had an arteriovenous malformation or something right around the PCC. And even there, maybe because this was a developmental thing and not a a stroke, for example, I, I don't remember, you know, he said, you know, that the person was not walking around in a selfless state, you know? Mm. So here, my sense is that if we learn a sense of self, you know, that's a distributed phenomenon. Mm. And so to unlearn it, that would also be a distributed phenomenon. Yeah. And so ways to look at that are, you know, some of the psychedelic research, for example. Yeah. I think of that as throwing a hand grenade in the brain and blowing up the self for a little while, you know? And if you look at that, not only are the two main hubs of the default mode network really deactivated when somebody takes psilocybin, for example, but in one of the few cases that I've ever seen, the two don't talk to each other. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Wow. So there's a functional decoupling of the posterior cingulate and the medial prefrontal cortex. This is fascinating work done by Robin Carhart-Harris, David Nutt, others who have really pioneered this field. And so I asked Robin, I said, hey, can you, because he published some papers where he seeded the, as in he put a, a marker, basically a functional marker in the, this is just looking at scans. He didn't put something physically in the brain. But when he scanned people's brains who had gotten psilocybin, he could look at how the brain regions talk to each other. And so Mm -hmm. he could say, I'm going to mark this brain region and see how it talks to all these other brain regions or the rest of the brain. And he marked the medial prefrontal cortex. I wanted him to mark the posterior cingulate selfishly. Mm. You know, this is myself (laughs) saying, I want to know the answer. But he was more interested in the medial prefrontal cortex at that time. And what he found was that you know, so not only is it not talking to the posterior cingulate cortex, but boy, is it talking to all other types of brain regions. Yeah. It's like 
it suddenly, when you get out of your own way and you just kind of let your brain do its thing, it says, wow, this is, I'm going to talk to everybody. And Mm, so mm -hmm. people speculate that this may be, you know, people talk about having very creative ideas, having, you know, really not being bounded by their current concepts of the world when they're tripping. Yeah. And that may be a marker of, you know, when you deconstruct, I think of it as if we're driving a car with one foot on the brake and one foot on the gas, you know, we don't get very good gas mileage. Deconstructing the self, like using psilocybin or meditating is like taking your foot off the brake. Suddenly the car lurches forward in a much more efficient manner. And if you think of that lurching forward, it's like, oh, this car can really drive. And it's like Mm -hmm. the brain, boy, it can really do amazing things when we get out of our own way. Yeah. And so in that sense, it it may be just kind of taking the brakes off. And in that sense, it's not like there's a self that's constructed all over the brain, but there's, you know, the self is that is the, uh, the hindrance Hmm. to the brain kind of functioning at an, uh, at an optimal way. Well, I think this is just like such a key point that you're making here because it gets to a key pain point that people have when they start engaging with this kind of material. Because we can talk until we're blue in the face about how like contraction bad, clinging bad, the closed hand, all of that stuff. People kind of like having a self. I kind of like having a self. I'm pretty attached to the like idea of who Forrest is and being Forrest out in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of the time when you first start engaging these questions with people, the, there's a very natural sort of rebuttal and response, which is like, well, I don't know, I kind of like me. Or like, ooh, it feels sort of scary to let go of these functions that I describe as me in the brain. But then you get to everything you just said, where the truth is that like when that little part of it gets a little bit more relaxed, whether it's because somebody had a solid dose of psilocybin or it's because they went down the deep path of meditative practice. And these things obviously have different consequences long-term and different results that you can get from them. Mm -hmm. Wow, all of a sudden we see all of these cool experiences come online, whether it's the, the mystical type experiences that people talk about associated with psilocybin and MDMA and other psychedelics. Or it's just the ability to have a much more integrative experience of yourself, more creativity, less attachment, less pain, all of that good stuff. Yeah. But you need to kind of get out of your own way first. So I'm, I'm just glad that you really mentioned that part of it and, and the value in this whole process for people. Yeah. So if you take it full circle to what we talked about at the very beginning, you know, with this conceptual sense of self and the experiential sense of self, the way I, I think of this is that having a self is not a problem taking ourselves personally mm. perhaps a little more problematic yeah. so that that having a self the concept of self you know it's not like we're trying to get rid of self it's that we're helping ourselves see very clearly which part of the self is helpful like that mm. conceptual sense where we can be creative we can be hopefully helpful in the world and decreasing suffering and all these other things. Yeah, totally. And at the same time, how we get in our own way by thinking, I'm going to save the world or whatever. Do these things, yeah. And that actually just, you know, burns gas. It's very fuel inefficient. And if we can see, you know, if we can get a feedback, you know, just looking at how painful it is to be a narcissist, for example, then we naturally say, wow, that's, boy, this car, it could drive much more efficiently. And we play with taking our foot off the brake. 
and we realize, wow, now this thing can hum. Mm. And then we're we're off to the races. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just so much here that we could keep on going for probably another episode about this entire universe, which would be fantastic. But uh, as we kind of get to the very end here, Judd, and I want to be respectful of your time, you've done a lot of direct research of people who are like way down the path of practice here, looking at what's actually going on in people's brains when they're engaged in some of these practices that we think of as being like very relaxing of the sense of self. And you've also talked to a lot of people who have got a lot of game in this area. And I'm just wondering, maybe, I, I don't know if there's a way to kind of put it simply here, but bottom line, what have you seen really helps people with all of this? Well, it's funny you say put it simply because the more we learn, the simpler things seem to get. Totally, yeah. And that's certainly been the case here. Boy, I could tell you about all the wild concepts I had at the beginning. <laughs> and most of those have fallen away because they just don't seem to hold up. Yeah. So what I would say, simply put, no matter where we are on the path, we're either clinging, holding on, contracting, or we are letting go. Mm. And so what I've seen in my own experience, and this certainly informs my own practice, but also in others that we've studied and, and spoken with, is that really seeing how painful it is to be contracted or to be holding on to something helps our brain naturally see, oh, mm. is that really a direction I want to continue in? Yeah. Not in a thinking way, but experientially, especially when we compare that to what it's like when we're simply resting in awareness or when we're letting go. And that's really what it's simplified down to is contraction and expansion. Notice these. Don't do anything about them. We, the more we do, the more we contract. But simply notice, see which one is less painful, see which one is more joyful, see which one helps us connect with others more in the world. Rinse and repeat. I think that's a great summary of a lot of material and a lot of what we also talked about here today. So again, Judd, just thanks so much for taking the time to do this. It's, it's always such a pleasure. Mm, it was my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm with Bahia without the bull. <laughs> <laughs> today, Rick and I had a great time speaking with Dr. Judd Brewer about the self, where we can find self in the brain, what we mean by that word, and the benefits that we could get from relaxing our attachment to that apparent self over time. What a self is exactly, and whether or not that self is based on systems in the brain and body or on something else that it's a bit harder to put our finger on, has been a question that has occupied people for thousands and thousands of years. It's a big question, and one of the real challenges with it sometimes is defining what we mean when we say self or when we say a word like consciousness. We know that there are systems in the brain that relate to our sense of self-awareness, systems that relate to memory or our sensory systems. But how those systems come together to create a neural basis for what we describe as a sense of self is not perfectly well understood yet. It's something we're still working on. And then, maybe even more importantly, how those underlying neural structures, those physical structures, create an experience at all that's non-physical in nature. Our own constant streaming of the sense of I is really poorly understood. And that's something that we may or may not ever truly figure out. One of the important takeaways from the early part of the conversation 
was Rick's riff about the kind of contradictory nature of self, how we feel like there is a clear I there, and that that I has been there ever since we can remember, at least for most of us. But we know that if we investigate the self a little bit more deeply, things start to break down. For instance, the self changes a lot over time. I'm very different than the person that I was five or 10 or 20 years ago. And then if we look for self in the brain or self in our own experience, we can't really quite find it. We can find a lot of things that have selfy properties, but there's not exactly a location that we can point to and be like, ah, yes, the self is there. Then we know that the self or what we think of as the self is based on a lot of different processes. Uh, It's dependent upon them. It's not independent from them. So the closer and closer that we get to our investigation of the self, we find that As Rick likes to say, the self is like a unicorn. We can imagine what a unicorn is like, but we can't actually see one out in the world. We spent a lot of the early part of the conversation talking about some of the consequences that arise from the narrow grasping of self. And then alongside that, what we can start to feel or what we can start to experience as we slowly relax attachment to that narrow self over time. Judd explained some of this through his deep, deep knowledge of the neurology and neurobiology that underpins what we can think of as the act of selfing. He particularly emphasized the role of the PCC, the posterior cingulate cortex. This is a key brain region that seems to really deactivate both in experienced meditators and in people who have been given a strong dose of a psychedelic. And really interestingly, when that region of the brain gets deactivated a little bit, or maybe particularly when other regions of the brain start talking to it less, they start talking to each other a lot more. And there's a key takeaway from this. Constructing an apparent I, a sense of self, was really, really useful when it came down to passing on genes that passed on genes millions of years ago. It was really, really good for keeping us alive. But these days, it's not great for overall quality of life. But our brains today are quite similar to the ones that were possessed by our ancestors hundreds of thousands of years ago. So we still have the same machinery that kept them alive back then. It hasn't really been updated for our modern environments. If you want to rewire some of these patterns and change how you relate to the sense of self, If you want to lighten up about it a little bit, if you want to cling to it less strongly, Judd really emphasized throughout the conversation the importance of paying close attention to what your brain is doing, and particularly what feels good and what feels bad. And what you'll often notice if you really pay attention is that when there's a lot of self-involved, things feel less good. Things are less rewarding, there is more contraction, there's more clinging, And these experiences are painful at the end of the day, even if there are momentary aspects of them that are pleasurable. And in much the same way, we can increasingly contact the ways in which that relaxation, that open hand, that light holding, really, really feels a lot better over the long term. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. It was truly great to have Judd back on the show. He is such an expert, and he's also such an easy person to talk to about these topics that could very easily be very complicated and very confusing. And he's remarkably good at boiling things down to the essence and really simplifying them. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. 
Maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really helps us out. And hey, you can tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks again for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.